Are you predicting that wireless EV charging is going to happen in the next 12 months? I'm not saying it's going to be fully commercial, but I'm going to say it's going to surface in a much, much stronger way. And it's going to be visible and noticeable. Right now, it's not. I think another hot take, transformers are going to matter in 2021. That's why you, you want to have an engineer in the seat talking and not, not a non-engineer. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors and the Communications Director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor, new title, over at TechCrunch. Before I kick it over to the third Atonicat, Alex Roy, I just want to briefly explain what we're doing here. We're trying to try to recreate our anti-CDS party, which of course we're not doing this year because we're not in Vegas. We're definitely not getting together in big groups. So we've invited a bunch of folks on, some newcomers and some familiar faces to talk about predictions for 2021. So without further ado, Alex, take it away. All right. Um, should we start with uh, Ro Gupta, um, founder of Carmera? You were the founder, were you not? Correct. Well, co-founder. Co-founder and also the sponsor of our event tonight. And, and we, uh, have to, uh, we have to shout out uh, Carmera. Thank you. I, you know, they've been um, the sponsor of our CES party uh, every year, uh, except for the very, very first year. So ever since it's actually been in a nice hotel suite and, and well catered and everything. So, uh, and, and, you know, once again, um, they really, you know, stepped in and provide the organization that we at the Atonicast kind of struggle with sometimes. Um, so we really appreciate everything they do for us. Um, so yeah, thanks, Ro. And, and showing, Ro, thank you for your visionary insight, supporting the Atonicast, the most honest podcast in this, this sector since day one. Thank you for your support. Um, uh, and then we have uh, the inimitable Michelle Avery, who is the head of autonomous and automated mobility for the World Economic Forum. Am I getting that correct from the top, off the top of my head? Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, Michelle also uh, is working outside, uh, well, actually as part of WEF, also on safety initiatives and safety standards. It's very interesting stuff and has uh, taken up the mantle of the concept of universal basic mobility and evolved it into universal mobility, which we'll talk about probably not tonight. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, Allison Malik, previously of GM Ventures, uh, as well as one of uh, the former leaders of uh, May Mobility. And now I, I can't, it's a mouthful. Uh, what is your new title? The Executive Director for the Commission on the Future of Mobility. That's a great, that's great. Most importantly, she's a real engineer, not one of these people shoehorned into an executive role because, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, what, what's the word? Um, window dresser. She's a, an actual engineer who knows stuff. And it's really, you know, it's not often you get people who really can, explain themselves without a handler. We respect Allison. She's a truth teller. Um, Riley Brett, is that fair, Allison? Do you like that one? I like that. Truth teller. That's what I'm going to yeah, change the, the headline to. Engineer is key because you know, engineers know stuff. I'm not an engineer, so I have to ask other people. Riley Brennan, whose finger is literally on the pulse, actually more his hand like um, like, a, like a stranglehold on the information flow of the sector via his newsletter, The Future Transportation, which if anyone in, interviews for a job uh, and they don't read that, I just, I just write them right off. I just, I just don't take it seriously. Um, Consider well, it more the neti pot 
of mobility <laughs> than the, putting having the stranglehold on, but you can go with that if you want tonight. Thanks, and, Alex. And, and to be fair, years ago, Riley had a blog um, where he published three posts, and, and I, I'm, I'm speculating that when people realized how insightful these posts were, and he realized that, he just made it into a newsletter. And, and that has become kind of the funnel of people into and out of um, the sector via his fund, trucks.vc. So is that a fair Thank, description? Yeah, thanks, everyone. And, one, and just let me say congrats to Kirsten on the new title. It's awesome. So, and well-deserved. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm marching through this appropriately quickly. We're almost through it. Okay. Okay. A- Anuja Sonalkar. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, whom I met through Riley, who is the founder and CEO of Steer Technologies um, and was on the Atonicast and one of our, our, our best guests and uh, another truth teller. It's good to have you here tonight. Thank you. It's great to be here. Excited. Uh, and then Abe Jacobian. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? That is very correct. Okay. Uh, also, uh, uh, who, actually, I don't even know what your title is. <laughs> so, uh, what is your actual title? Are you co-founder? I, no, no, not quite. So, I'm, I, uh, in short, I am overhead, but the technical term is uh, I am um, global head of partnership solutions at uh, for automotive at Google. Essentially, what I do is I try to think through how to bring the best of Google to the vertical, uh, whether it's cloud, Android, uh, Google Maps and a full uh, suite of solutions into the vertical. All I remember, forgive me, from when we met in person was that you were the most handsome man there because your haircut is like mine, but better You, you inspired me. I kind of went tighter today. I was like, I got to... That, that is not true. Uh, all right, we should get started. I'm sorry if I went over long here tonight. I hope I didn't offend anyone. Let's get started with our 2020 predictions. Uh, my favorite uh, uh, line about predictions is... Um, from Fight Club, on a long enough timeline, the survival of anything, right, it, it's zero. But you can also say that on a long enough timeline, um, everything's inevitable. Everybody knows eventually autonomous vehicles will arrive. The only question is, who will be one of the winners? And 120 years ago, the predicted winner of the elevator wars was not Otis Elevator. It was a guy named Otis Tufts. And he had a screwdriver elevator that was slow and safe that went up at a snail's pace. And once you get, if it was more than five stories tall, you didn't want to sit in that thing any longer. So it took 20 minutes and everyone thought he was going to win the elevator wars. Let's dive into what we talked about last year. My first prediction was that driver monitoring systems and advanced driver assistance would become a growth market. The DMS vendors are undervalued and they shouldn't be. And they're all going to get acquired by a tier one this year. And I was completely wrong. Does anyone want to comment on this? I think the the thing that we missed, that we all sort of missed, I think, going back and listening to that was um, I, none of us predicted that that sort of uh, autonomous vehicle, like fully autonomous vehicles, would sort of really make the the comeback that we've seen just in the in the last quarter third of uh, of twenty twenty. Um, it was just amazing to see uh, you had a couple of, of news developments um, that kind of fueled that. But it was like all of a sudden it felt like we were sort of climbing out of the, the trough of disillusionment. Um, I did not predict that that would happen in 2020. Um, we were all we were all really heavily, if you listen to that episode, heavily sort of uh, uh, predicting that, you know, ADAS was really going to be the focus um, for the year. And and I think AV's, AV's stage a comeback. So I think we were all wrong about that. Well, what about? Hold on. No, I want to hear from. I want to hear from. Well, here's the thing. 
were we really wrong or has it just gotten quieter now because there was a slew of announcements for about 18 months around ADAS and now tier one suppliers are locking up, um, you know, their customers and soon we'll see the fruits of that. Is that possible? I would say we should probably take ADAS and driver monitoring off the table until the Euro NCAP, uh, you know, standards kick in, by which time every OEM is going to make a DMS standard and ADAS is going to improve. And that's going to take a few more years. Michelle Avery, surely you have something to add to that topic since you're, yeah, come on. Well, I think what's going to be most exciting coming out of Europe is going to be what Germany comes out with in the summer with their regulations. And I think we'll see the UNECE in Japan and a lot of other countries start following that. And it's a very interesting three-step process. If you look at the operational approval through the federal authority and then the operational design domains operating through the local areas where they're going to be inspecting the routes and really taking a look at it, it's an interesting model. And it could really do what you need for the local control as well as for the federal authority. And it's definitely slanted towards shuttles, towards public, and towards moving more people, which I think we all agree in the future we need more of. Um, so, did, did just did, can I just get a show of hands from folks in the audience that I mean, the in the on our panel here, who sort of thought that 2020 would be the year? So a year ago, who who thought that 2020 would be the year that, if only psychologically. Uh, we started to kind of get out of the trough of disillusionment in terms of public perceptions. And, and, and maybe you disagree that we have. Um, did, anybody, did you expect that, Anusha? I just saw your hand. I did. I was expecting that because I think, first of all, I think the ADAS and the AV cycles are separate. And I think they both had a lot of growth. Um, the ADAS market grew significantly. Um, the tier ones and the OEMs locked really a lot of contracts there and a lot of new growth emerged in that space. But AVs were starting to, you know, everybody was starting to say, okay, we're moving away from these uh, predictions of when they're going to come and everybody's predictions were going wrong. And um, just around the around March, uh, we saw when COVID really took over the world, uh, we noticed that there was psychologically this effect that people wanted to focus on contactless, human-less. And I think there, I think that contributed really to the rise of um, of uh, AVs in general. Um, the last mile deliveries, for example, uh, was a significant growth because of that. Yeah, I want to agree with that. I think from a tech perspective, uh, the last quarter of 2020 was interesting with the announcements. But for what's really going to drive change, to Alex's point, nobody sits in a, a screw-driven elevator. Um, figuring out how to match the tech to a business case that's useful uh, is really where we're going to see interesting change and, and change beyond the hearts and minds of like nerds that follow this space like we all do. Um, and so I think to Anuja's point, all of a sudden it became crystal clear why last mile AV delivery is something we should be talking about. Um, and I think that, that that isn't going to go away um, and, and as we look at what COVID has done for people's perceptions around shared transportation, in particular in the U.S., um, I think that we're going to see, honestly, more interesting things happening in the package space in the near term. 
Um, well, well, there will be tech announcements and people will be riding around, you know, without uh, anyone in the car to control it. You know, that's going to continue to happen. But in terms of really starting to move the needle on the underlying business of specific sectors, I'm like way more excited about watching what's going on in the good space. Is that a prediction? Uh, I no, because that kind of fits with what I saw last year. So I'll save it and I'll get into the details during the prediction. I don't I don't yeah, know if yeah. I'm allowed to like start that yet. Well, you're allowed, but first we have to troll <laughs> Alex and Ed and myself for all the fails that we had last well, year. Well, hang on this year. So, because actually Allison um we sort of the move to to one of the predictions that I think all three of us got right um for 2020 although maybe for some of the wrong reasons for some reason none of us predicted that there'd be a global pandemic which i think is really disappointing and we all need to uh, if you to, saw to do pictures, better <laughs> yeah, Nassim Taleb to, did yeah <laughs> well i would say this um i want to know if anyone who's listening or who's the panelist right now when they saw the registration link in the pictures of last year's party if that a scent chills down your spine and you kind of like were re- repelled by that and then had sort of a fond memory, even though it showed crowds of people. Obviously, we didn't know that a pandemic was just eminently arriving. I did get really sick after last year's Autonicast party for Me about too. three days yeah. after I came out. I was awfully sick. Hmm. So that was definitely a, a big super spreader <laughs> event that we were all a part of last year. So in in spite of, of not predicting COVID, which again, we were sorry, we regret the the oversight. Um, we did all agree on our 2020 predictions episode that commercial vehicles would become more of a focus for level four companies. Now, as Anuja was saying, I mean, you know, the pandemic has been a, a, a huge, played a huge role in, in that sort of going even further. But I think you know, pretty clearly uh, there were indications that that was going to be the case. And I think that, right, Allison, that gets to what you were just saying about, um, you know, not just assuming that, you know, well, there's an autonomous vehicle, then clearly the only thing is to move people around. But no, there's lots of things that need to be moved around. And and some of those business models might be a little more appealing uh, in the short term. Agreed. You guys got one thing right. We got one <laughs> thing right. One other thing that I want to just uh, uh, review is that we had some predictions around policy. And um, and in one case, I was was convinced that the CPUC, and we're talking about this is the commission in California that is essentially allows, or at the time didn't allow um, companies that, autonomous vehicle companies that wanted to have shared ride hailing services to charge for rides um, there's two agencies or authorities in California that sort of regulate um, autonomous vehicles, the DMV being the main one, but the CPUC being the other one. And I was, I think I was pretty aggressive. It doesn't sound like me, but um, where I told Ed that he was completely wrong and that it was absolutely not going to happen because of the sources I had. And I was right until the very, very end of the year. Um, and then Ed was right. So it kind of like flip flopped, but it was like December. When it all but came also, down. I retracted it afterwards because I went to, we recorded that episode, the predictions episode. I predicted that the, the CPUC, California Public Utilities Commission, would, would go back and, and, and actually say, yeah, it is okay to charge for rides because one of the things that the companies need to, to understand is, is the business model as much as the technology itself, right? Um, and uh, I thought they were about a pressure. 
Uh, I went to CES. Everyone was like, no, you're definitely wrong. You know, you blew that prediction. And I think on one of the subsequent episodes, um, I was like, I like retracted it. So I ended up being right, but I'd already retracted the prediction. So I don't think that counts. Can anyone here explain anyone? Because I don't know the answer. How the CPC came to exist. If any other state has an entity like it. I mean, Public Utility Commission, it, it, it's originally, they regulated public utilities. So, you know, power, you know, telephone, things like that. And, and essentially ride hailing. Well, so, so they, they, they regulated um, uh, livery cars and taxis, right? And so I think ride hailing just kind of got grandfathered in with, with that. Um, we did make uh, so a, a few other predictions. Um, I believe I predicted that a version of the AV Start Act would pass in 2020. That uh, definitely did not happen. Kirsten uh, sort of countered that um, legislation would be introduced but not passed at the federal level, um, and then maybe maybe stuff would would happen more at the state level. I, Correct me if I'm wrong here, folks, but 2020 was, was really not, not a whole lot in terms of legislation happened around AV. Certainly, AV Start Act did not pass. Um, Except for one big thing, right? Um, there was one big moment in legislation where NHTSA said, and I think Alex said it last year, and I was surprised that he, he made such an accurate prediction and it came true. Um, he, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> You said something to the tune of unoccupied, no human occupied vehicles. Um, if there was a way that NHTSA would, you know, lower the bar for safety for those kind of vehicles, then we would see that Zoom pass or something like that. And I think NHTSA did make an announcement that uh, if there are dedicated vehicles that will be not occupied by humans, but only purpose built for uh, deliveries, then they are exempt from the safety requirements. Thank That's you for remembering easy. that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so NHTSA did in fact put out a new rule that allows vehicles that do not have seats to carry passengers to right. um, not include things like driver mirrors because there's no no person to, to look out the mirror. There are still other safety regs that they have to follow. So those of you right. listeners working in the uh, goods movement space don't think you get to throw out the whole reg. Um, and I, I, so I think from a regulatory perspective, finally, we got like a little bit of work done, but there's still a lot to go. Um, pretty much everybody still has to file for exemptions. That just reduces the list of things that would be on that that checklist. And I was laughing. Uh, so I, I now work in policy. I did not previously work in policy, but uh, just tracking the Senate, there was no way in hell that anything was going to come up. Question, Allison. Um how many, uh, uh, give, given your technical background, um, when you interact with regulators, I'm trying to word this in such a way this won't come back and bite me years from now. When you interact with people in politics, um, uh, how great is the gulf between um, what they need to know and what you need to explain to them? So I'm just getting started. So I, I get to claim a little bit of ignorance. Uh, and, I, and for the work I'm doing, we are covering a broad spectrum of things. So I'm still coming up to speed in some areas. But I think high level, a lot of times for policymakers, there 
uh, if they have a, an understanding, it's going to be high level uh, just because they've got a lot of different things to cover from the needs of their constituents. So that's sort of like the focus. Their, their customer that they're worried about is their constituent and maybe, you know, their progression in their career, um, but not necessarily having a background in a specific area where when you're talking with regulators, um, especially those that are career versus those that have been put in by an administration, there there is technical expertise. I think what's really interesting in the autonomous space is that a lot of the technology is still pretty new. And so although there is some expertise in more traditional areas, there's still a lot of opportunity for learning, but also, you know, interest. And so I think that's where it's good to be able to create conversation for people to be able be able to learn. Alex, I think you might be surprised at how fluent a lot of automotive CEOs are on these topics and how many, how much complexity they can actually juggle on these. Being fortunate enough to attend our annual meeting in Davos um, every year, except for obviously this year, which we're going to be holding virtually next week. Uh, behind closed doors, I mean, seriously, there is a phenomenal amount of understanding. And a lot of the CEOs of automakers are also engineers. That's how they traditionally come up through the ranks. You don't usually get a lot of the sales and the marketing side who generally lead a lot of these companies, but they're also juggling not just the autonomous vehicle issue, but the electrification issue, over the air issue. And these are big budget lines in in any of their fiscal concerns. And so they tend to pay attention to these. Well, you know, given that you've just made a, a case for you know the competence of some OEM leadership, I'm now going to ask you to make a prediction. About what? How many global automotive manufacturers will still exist in five years? Independently? Well, let me maybe... I would let you frame the answer, but I'm since we're reading the same book and I've asked everyone to read Lifted, A Cultural History of the Elevator by Andreas Bernard. It's a book of genius. There were hundreds of elevator manufacturers and in the span of 20 years, it went down to basically five. And so um, I say this in every episode that we don't need, what is it? Riley, how many car manufacturers are there 14. in the world? Really, 14? We don't need 14. But Marcus. we're getting we're getting new ones all the time. Like, yeah, we're gonna, I was going to say the number's actually going gonna be greater. Yeah, we're yeah, going well, in the wrong uh, direction. All right, so um, Michelle and then Ryan. And also micro-manufacturing. If that ever takes off, that's actually going to increase the number of vehicles and number of manufacturers as well. So how many um, global automakers will exist in well hang on let's let's let michelle think about that because we're not actually at the prediction making oh. point yeah we're, we still have a couple more of, of our past predictions to get through so michelle take some time to, to well, consider. Then let me give ro a, a little hint of what i'm going to ask him later there when i was growing up my father would take me to the map store and it was my favorite store i would buy i would buy i would want all the michelin paper maps and then there was like the rand mcnally set and they weren't always exactly the same and i loved the packaging and how they were on and then i realized you know as i got older there were dozens there used to be hundreds of map makers and little by little it was winnowed down to just a handful same thing happened in satellite mapping i'd like to know a little bit about the future of the mapping space both um, in vehicle and for autonomous vehicle developers so you think Bake that one for a few. I came with takes tonight. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, cool. 
All right. So um, uh, on the policy thing, I completely blew the prediction. I thought that uh, Cruz would finally get its uh, exemption petition approved. It did not. It actually had to resubmit a new one uh, this year or, or last year in 2020. So um, I completely blew that. Basically, what it's looking like is uh, don't don't take my uh, word for stuff when it comes to uh, uh, predictions on regulation. Uh it, which in my defense is not easy, but um, we also, Kirsten, we missed a couple of, um, of, of deals. So we, we had predictions, well, actually Alex predicted that Amazon would, would form a partnership in 2020. Is that what I said? You, you said that they would either leak, uh, uh, we would either learn more information about, about Amazon doing its own in-house uh, AV development program, or that they would partner uh, it's not exactly the same as buying. I thought, they were buy Neuro. I thought they were going to buy Neuro because it seemed to make sense. Riley, didn't that, wouldn't that, that make sense. sense? Like they want, they need, they need a delivery play. Amazon does not need a robo taxi play. And Neuro seems to be the one. Who's to say they won't also buy Neuro? You know, oh. they're not done making acquisitions in logistics. Right. Well, that, that sounds dangerously close to a prediction. We're not ready for those yet, Riley. Contain yourself. Okay, just just hold back for just a second. <laughs> we also let's see. I guess I predicted. Man, I got so many things wrong with, uh, last year. I predicted, or I speculated anyway, that um, SoftBank might force a, a, a rumor, uh, a merger between Uber, uh, ATG, and Cruise, since SoftBank is an investor in both. So I sort of, you know. I think at that point we we sort of knew that ATG was going to end up in, in some kind of deal with someone. Uh, you didn't need us, to Nostradamus to see that one coming. None of us predicted Aurora though, um, which is interesting. And by the way, they literally just closed that deal today. So um, it's hundred uh, percent official. Abe, don't you have secret information or insight that you want to share with us <laughs> from last year? That you can put in perspective here now. I, I have secret information. Not, I can't really share them, um, but based on personal views, I think you guys are touching on some uh, pieces that I would agree with. And for example, mapping, I think there is something to be had there. And we could talk about that, I guess, in the prediction area. Oh, I can't but, wait. Uh, yeah. So, so I think we, that's just about everything for the major predictions that we made. Um, we were wrong about some stuff related to like the Olympics and the election and there were a few other things in there, but um, if we wait, I have to add one more thing here. Our friend Dana Hull said, said, predicted there'll be downtown vehicle bans. And, uh, and that prediction, I, I'm going to guess, came out of what, uh, what was Sidewalk Labs was doing in Toronto, where there was some discussion of banning private vehicles in their, in their urban project. And there was a lot of pushback. And of course, I, because I'm a little troublemaker stirred that pot and um suggesting that the human driving association should come in and defend driver's rights i was kidding because i don't really that doesn't make any sense and in fact sidewalk labs that that project um was shut down this year so there will not be any downtown driver bans there but i predict oh we're not there yet we'll come back to it later you say that that didn't happen but at the same time because of covid streets did get shut down to cars Yep, slow streets. Um, definitely happened here in Portland. Happened in the Bay Area. Happened a bunch of a bunch of places. So I think uh, Dana was 
absolutely right. Although I think like some of these other predictions uh, might not have, have uh, been able to possibly foresee the, the entire picture because who knew that a pandemic was gonna happen. Um, so I think that that pretty much covers most of our, our sort of look back at our, uh, at our 2020 predictions. And really the main reason we wanna be here today as much as we like sort of admitting that, that we were morons who got stuff wrong, um, we want to we want to make a bunch of predictions about next year or this year, um, so that uh, a year from now we can all come back here and laugh at ourselves for being morons and getting it wrong. Um, and I think probably a good place to start might be uh, sort of M and A mergers and acquisitions. It's always a popular thing. Half the three quarters of the scuttlebutt that, that people talk about, uh, you know, at the beginning and end of, of Zoom calls in this space seems to be around sort of rumors of, about who's doing deals with who and, and things like that. So does somebody have a bold mergers and acquisitions, whether it's an autonomous or, or mobility sort of technology more broadly, uh, big M&A deal that maybe folks are not seeing coming in 2020? I do, but I don't want to go first. Pearson. I was going to say, I think Riley just made a pretty big face prediction. He did. So I, I, I just wanted to introduce Riley back in. My prediction is that Amazon's not done making acquisitions. You know, whether it's neuro, I, I have no idea. I'm totally pulling that out of the earlier conversation and the comment you made, but I think that they're not done. Um, the other component, I think, when thinking about Amazon is if you look at Walmart and some of the other big retailers that want to be a little bit like Amazon, they generally follow Amazon 18 to 24 months behind them. So what Amazon has been doing in autonomy in 2020, um, expect other large players like that to be doing in 21 and 22. So I think there's going to be some pretty big acquisitions done. Um, I guess the the most interesting part of that is that it, they'll likely be related to vehicle, or sorry, to delivery and logistics as opposed to robotaxi. Um, it still remains to be, to be seen for me if Zooks is going to remain as a robotaxi company in five years under Amazon's direction, or if it's going to be really about logistics and delivery. And you know, I'm excited to see what happens there. If only someone was an investor in at least one interesting company in the delivery space and perhaps more than one in the logistics space, but who can say? Right. Um, right. I, I have a, a prediction. I've been watching um, the company Via for a while and they're the on-demand shuttle company. And I thought that they wouldn't fare very well in 2020 because of COVID and sharing, but they have expanded quite a bit with cities. And I think it's because cities are trying to find ways to, you know, maybe not to augment some of their services and deal with like um, transportation deserts and things like that. I think that they're looking to add or layer in their business and that they're going to be making some acquisitions um, just based on how they've expanded and some of their partnerships. Um, but I think they'll be the ones acquiring, not the other way around. Oh. Are you guys? Are you guys counting? Are we counting SPACs as M and A? I was going right. to say the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so is Via going to SPAC? Because where are they going to get their money? I don't know about that. I mean, I have. Don't get me started on SPACs. Um, that's a whole other prediction that we can get into later. But 
Um, I think that they, I don't think they're going to be making huge acquisitions, but I do think that they're going to be looking at other startups to layer and like augment their business and to go beyond just an on-demand um, platform, shuttle platform for cities, but to expand into um, to other to become more of a full service provider to cities. So is that, are you talking about like vertical integration, like, like getting into hardware, like merging with a, with a, no, a but like providing or? more of like the data insights and services. And, you know, there are like, there are a lot of times cities will um, work with like data providers and things like that for like analytics, a, a remix or something. Sure. Is like, that, or yeah, or any other company you're thinking. Yeah. Or, or yeah. Or others, but something like that. Like I could just see them sort of um, starting to, um, layer their product more. And I think that there's going to be other companies like them. I'm kind of using them as an example, but other companies like them that might be doing um, some of the same because they've learned in 2020 that um, especially on the shared shuttle space or shared ride hailing that, that certainly COVID has introduced some headwinds to that. And so I think they need to be more smart about the types of services that they're providing to cities. I think that's a good point, too, because thinking about the budgets that cities have, which have been decimated. um, And so for a service provider that wants to come in, they're going to have to be creative about hitting different budgets as well that cover providing services and things like that. Well, they have basically three different business models, don't they? They also have the bit where they're doing um, basically public transit in several cities around the world. Right. And I think right. we'll see them go even deeper into more specialized transit like paratransit. And I think that's an area where we're going to see a lot more innovation is on that inclusivity and equity side. Uh, particularly, you mentioned the CPUC earlier. And one of the more interesting things to me that came out of those announcements were how they highlighted that that ride-hailing companies in, need to be more explicit in serving communities with disabilities. And VIA is definitely in that space as a trusted provider to a lot of these smaller metropolitan areas that struggle with um, different sized vehicles and different routes. I, I agree. So you're exactly right. So they're an operator just in a couple of city, a few cities, but they're really their main business is sort of as this platform provider to other as like a transit provider, a platform provider. So the software services side, I think that VIA is just an example of companies that are going to be this movement towards right sizing instead of um, as maybe cities try to find ways to offer public transit that right now is seeing a decrease in ridership. Can someone articulate, can you articulate the prediction here? I did. I think I said that in the beginning. Are you taking notes or something? They're going to, they're going to make an, an acquisition. I'm to live tweet. Oh, oh, I see. I, I just think in general that, that, that cities are going to be looking for right-sized solutions as opposed to just putting more money in specifically into traditional public transit. And so you're going to see companies like Via and also maybe Uber Transit, although I'm on the fence as to whether Uber Transit is going to be offloaded like every other uh, piece of Uber, or if it will actually become a, com- a, a remaining component to the company. So I'm not really sure where I fall. I don't know if anyone has, else has an opinion on that one. 
on Uber Transit specifically or on? Yeah, yeah. Whether Uber will keep Uber Transit. But in general, I think companies are going to be like startups are going to be working more with cities to sort of right size because of um, as an outgrowth out of out of COVID um, and, and understanding that people just don't feel comfortable cramming, at least in the United States, going back into subways and in and, and traditional buses. I predict that once there's a critical mass of vaccination, um, that people will rapidly forget their reservations by getting on buses and subways very rapidly. I actually agree with that. However, Kirsten, I think I'm, I'm going to put a chip behind your bed. And another reason is just a couple of days ago, uh, Secretary of Transportation designate Buttigieg um, appointed Alex, our former uh, DOT head in New York City, as his, de- as his deputy. Jeanette Holly Sadiq Khan. Holly Trottenberg. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wait, uh, what is she? Sorry, she was, go on. She was the what, is, what job did she get? I'm not, I don't know. Does she? I don't know. But um, anyway, my point, my, my point yeah. is we have a mayor who's a big city guy, you know, smart city guy. And he also pointed his number two is, you know, managing big transit for a huge city. I could see there being more tailwinds, let's say, on on what Kirsten's saying in 2021. Well, I think it also feeds into the slow streets movement, because what's going to happen as uh, with slow streets moving forward? If it stays and more cities start routing traffic out of these neighborhoods and people start coming back to public transit, the cities are going to have a more difficult time at their transit planning. So I could really see where um, where we really need to think about what that's going to look like this year as, as the cities start opening up. So, so I actually think that kind of like last year, we said that that commercial vehicles um, would be sort of a big focus, particularly in, in autonomous, although clearly that's also happening with electric. Um, I actually think that that sort of the next step beyond that is 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 going to be transit. So I, I'm a little bit unsure on timing wise, whether sort of, you know, the the things will get sort of saturated enough in, in, in delivery and logistics over the next year, that it may be more like 2022 that we really start to see more sort of uh, automated uh, transit projects happening. But I think it is going to happen. I think in part it's because, as Alex says, people will come back, people will use those services again. But I think also, you know, this is a, a moment, this sort of pause where people really just aren't using the services. Um, the budgets are sort of, you know, in trouble um, business as usual is just not really working. I think that is an opportunity uh, uh, to sort of make some some big investments. We've seen we've seen more and more investments in electric buses and things of that nature. And I think that when you are already making a big investment like that, um, with autonomous drive technology getting more mature, I think potentially the opportunity to combine those those investments together. Again, I think maybe over in 2021 we might be a little too early for some of that, but I think that. Uh, towards the end of this year and into next year, we're going to see more news around automated buses and, and transit projects. Was that a prediction? Yeah, I think so. Feels Less like automation for, for safety. I think like, especially when you think like level two systems, I think is going to be really big, even uh, more immediately. I think as we look towards what could happen at the end of next year and, in, and into the following year, I think a lot of the spending priorities are going to happen in the next six 
to 12 months um, with the, the change in administration and trying to encourage more jobs in the U.S. to help dig the economy out of the hole. And so that's where I think that the timing gets a little bit tough. Can you get in to get appropriations set, not just for EV buses, but for automated EV buses? Um, and then are there enough manufacturers and, and service suppliers available to actually meet it? It's going to be an interesting race, but I, I don't know that I would call it a done deal just because some of those spending priorities are, are being established now. So what, can you articulate that prediction so I can put it on Twitter? <laughs> uh, I think that the prediction is that uh, the push for fully automated transportation, uh, unless people start getting on the bandwagon and we start seeing some pretty big demos in the next two months, is going to be hard in the, the public transit space. So basically, she's saying that I'm wrong, so... <laughs> Um, well, I, I don't know. I'm on team Allison. I'm some sorry, AV providers could surprise us. And, you know, we could see. So maybe this gets to the whole M&A activity. Maybe some with all of this money in the EV SPACs, we'll uh, get some EV companies buying up some AV companies so we can get some of those AV EV buses. I think that would be pretty exciting um, and would probably change, frankly, the policy that gets passed in the next couple of months. So hopefully our conversation will spur that. Uh, but if it doesn't, um, I, I just think there's so much uh, perceived need to get moving that um, waiting waiting for the AV stuff could, could, uh, could get interesting. Well, Allison, it's quite possible that other places in the world will spur the U.S. To, to get its act together and start moving on it. I mean, it's not like China is stopping. And they're, I mean, they're moving forward and we're also seeing Europe moving forward. I mentioned Germany earlier. I mean, that's gonna be a really big deal when we start seeing other parts of the world really pulling forward, particularly uh, countries like Germany moving out and pushing on these things. And they've made it very clear that they will be electric. They will be um, shuttles and they're gonna be augmenting public transit. So I, I absolutely agree. The best way to get the U.S. to act is to make us feel like we're behind. <laughs> I feel like we're oh, just wow. getting to that point with EVs. <laughs> so maybe if there's a little bit more news on the AV front, that'll spur some. Spur some well, that was my part. hottest of takes. I think China conclusively, we're all sitting here a year, year later, and conclusively they're the ones who get out of the trough um, this year. And it's, you know, no one argues that. I think everyone, to your, to your earlier point, I don't think it was that was conclusive at all, despite all these big announcements um, in the past few weeks. But I think China leads the way and then scares the hell out of everyone else. Ro, I have a question for you, though. How do you think that's going to impact the um, autonomous vehicle companies that are Chinese-backed or have Chinese founders, but who are operating both in the U.S. and in China? So there's a few. Um, do you see them? Where do you see them falling? Do you see them like scaling up operations in China and then sort of pulling back in the U.S. or kind of hitting the ground running and really expanding in the U.S.? And yes, I have a cat over my shoulder right now. So sorry. <laughs> I still think even with a change in administration, it's going to be tough sledding to try to like have it perfectly both ways as a, as a unified entity. Um, regardless of what happens with Scythia or whatever. I mean, to be honest, I, I think the Biden administration I mean, I don't think they're planning necessarily to just, you know, be all, you know, sort of 
cuddly with, with China um, just because that was sort of a, a Trump uh, posture. Um, I mean, they may be a little bit less, you know, kind of chest thumping, but I think, I think those companies are either going to have to sort of split into two or just, you know, go all in on one or the other. And, and that's, that also has started, that started to happen about 18 months ago. Um, you know, I, I agree with Ro. I predict that autonomous vehicle deployment at scale will become a national security issue and you'll have to split up your companies and create separate entities because it's going to come back and that it's not just a Trump issue. But how is that going to affect companies like Too Simple, which have partnered with uh, major U.S. companies and are scaling up in the United States? I just want to just interject a little prediction here because you mentioned Too Simple is a trucking company. I, I think that there's going to be consolidation in trucking next. I think you're going to see mergers of autonomous trucking companies uh, merge already. I mean, arguably, you know, Ike and, and Neuro, although that you know, not really, but I, I, so my, my specific prediction is two autonomous trucking companies will merge in 2021. Riley, would you like to make a prediction about the verticalization of AV plays? Will every AV developer have a trucking arm, a robotaxi arm, a delivery arm, uh, their own mapping, their own sensors, and then one or two OEM partners? Mm, only the really big people can afford to do that. Like Waymo, for example, or maybe Baidu or potentially Cruise or Argo, but um, we're still at the point where if you have an AV company, you need to be very focused on one particular task and build leadership there. So I don't know if any of them have the right to do that. In fact, I would argue that, you know, Waymo's trucking aspirations often get lost in the shuffle of its, you know, robotaxi messaging, because most people think of the Google self-driving car project and Waymo as being about robotaxi. There's actually a great deal of stuff they're doing around trucking and um, it's hard to actually tell that story. So I don't think so. Going back to the cities, I want to add one thing, which is I think there's a lot of interesting opportunity in cities around curb management. And one of the big lessons of COVID for me was cities waste a lot of, or they lose a lot by only having parking spots. And what cities really need is the ability to kind of change that real estate because you have things like UPS trucks. You also have kind of dynamic pickup for, you know, um, for takeout food and things like this. And so the ability to kind of reformat curbs, you can get three to four times the money out of a one curb space if you make it dynamic as opposed to just for parking. Um, and everybody knows in the United States, parking is, is woefully underpriced. And so there's going to be a billion dollar company just in curb management. We Our argument, of course, would be that um, we have an investment in a company called Cord out of New York City, that that would be it. But that's a really big opportunity. I think COVID has really moved that forward. The other thing, which is related to AVs for cities, is that I think there needs to be an effort by an AV company to say, we are going to put down protected bike lanes and protected areas for pedestrians. And if we do that first, then we get the exclusive right for a permit in a city during a period of time. Right now, I would argue even the the AV companies with the best public perception, and maybe Argo is one of the better ones, all of them are deemed to be untrustworthy by urban tech. Go on urban Twitter for five minutes and see how you're you know, received by urban Twitter um, if you talk about AVs. There's really a perception that the AV companies are filled with a bunch of um, dweebs who have this point of view about um, city technologies that's really not well aligned with safety and probably for good reason because 
bicyclists and pedestrians die at an incredible rate in U.S. cities. So if you're running a very, very large AV provider, I think the sitting duck opportunity is you say, I'm going to fund protected bike lanes and protected areas for pedestrians, and I'm going to get an economic benefit from that. And Alex, Roy, I know you're not on this podcast because you speak for Argo AI, but maybe um, in your wearing your other hat, you could take us up on that. We'll leave that one alone for now. <laughs> well, I like while that Alex is, well, Alex, yeah, I like that prediction. And um, Riley, I want to hear from Abe and Anuha as well. But um, Riley, I'm wondering if you think that the, just the idea, and I kind of talked about this last year, the, just the whole premise and idea of real estate and the intersection of sort of prop tech um, startups and transportation. If you're, if you're going to see based on COVID and, and how cities reacted, if we're going to see some changes um, and some new startups popping up that rethink real estate, not just the curb space, but just other areas as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of interesting kind of, you know, dark store and store. These are a couple of startups that we're not investors in, but I'm really fascinated by, which is, can you have these mini distribution centers because everybody wants everything delivered now or a significantly greater, you know, portion today than 12 months ago. And so I'm, I've always kind of been interested in that. If you look at a company called Prologis based in San Francisco, you know, it's basically Amazon's landlord and they, um, you know, they're basically a, a really interesting look at like how our consumer behaviors are changing real estate and logistics. So right now, a lot of the, um, commercial truck trips are really defined as short haul, like under 500 miles because of all the different changes that, you know, we're demanding. Like we want things shipped to us in a matter of hours. And my point of view on this, on delivery and a lot of the consumer behavior we're seeing is the next five years, everything's going to be um, within one day. And then by the next, by 10 years, everything's going to be same day. Um, kind of the same way that in most U.S. cities, you can get things two days. So it's going to change a lot of stuff. On the prop tech startup side, um, you know, we have a couple investments there. Cord is one, but we haven't made a huge amount of effort to, to go into prop tech. So I'm probably a little bit out of my depth. There's probably some opinion from Michelle I'd love to, to hear from on this one. I'm sorry, I was looking at Kirsten's hair extension comment from Rob <laughs> on the chat. What do you want to hear from me about? <laughs> Just on, on prop. Well, I'll let Alex repeat his question then. <laughs> no, the, the question or, or the comment I made was whether you, we would see kind of more a rethinking of real estate uh, mm, in light yeah. of because of the COVID-19 pandemic and sort of a, a hybridization of seeing more prop tech companies and transportation companies or some sort of hybrid of the two popping up. Um, Riley had mentioned core. There's also curb flow. There's some other sort of curb services, but beyond just the curb, I'm wondering if there's, there's um, any predictions there that you see or any movement in that space around transportation and real estate. Well, absolutely. And it comes from something I was reading in Riley's newsletter, um, some numbers from McKenzie, who we work very closely with about the amount of EV charging that we need. Um, and if we believe that the U.S. is finally getting serious about electric vehicles, we are going to have to address the, the fast charging issue. And that is real estate. 
uh, that is a real estate question and it's a non-trivial one. And I think it's also going to really involve a lot more on the equity and inclusion or it should because we need to think about how we make sure that this is equitable and inclusive for everyone in society and not just for wealthy, well-heeled neighborhoods as well. So I think that's gonna be a really, really big one. Uh, but I think when, when you start getting a lot more ride-hailing businesses um, that are electric and needing to charge for 20 or 30 minutes during the day, it's gonna fundamentally change the way services are provided. And my big prediction is that we're gonna see somebody like a Chick-fil-A open a fast charging stations and they're gonna give you a fried chicken sandwich along with a special EV charge menu. It takes 20 minutes to get through that drive-through, you might as well park. Eat yourself, get a sandwich and uh, get a fast charge while you're at it. Maybe even a special for over-the-air updates while you're plugged in if you stay a little longer and they guarantee it's security because we know that's gonna be an issue. I'd like to make a prediction on the piggybacking on what Michelle said. Uh, recently, there have been um, uh, many reviews of the Porsche Taycan and the uh, Ford Mustang Mach-E. And whatever they said about the cars, set that aside, every reviewer said the same thing, that there is, there is still great inconsistency and friction um, in public EV charging networks. It's just not as seamless as, as using a Tesla supercharger. And I, I predict that in the next 12 months, uh, someone is going to acquire one or more of the EV charging plug aggregator apps and, and, and tie it to um, billing in a serious way. Cause it, it, Which one do you I, think I, is the best, Alex, since you're an EV user, heavy EV I was user? Gonna, I was going to ask... You, Riley, or any of you, because plug I, share? I, 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 plug share is the one that comes to mind uh, that is, talk about, I want it to be so much more and it is not yet. And even <laughs> if they nail it, the market is so young. There's room, mm -hmm. there's room to solve this because you can't, the, the greater the density of an urban core, um, the harder it is to to charge an EV um, at, at, when sales start to scale. And, and talk about a chicken and egg problem, I just moved to Miami, to Brickell, which is like a minute, miniature Manhattan. And it is very difficult to charge an electric car down here. And the demographic, the, the Tesla ownership rates are high. People want to buy these and they just can't charge them. My prediction is that that sector is, is going to see more investment and more consolidation in the next 12 months. Yeah. So if I can piggyback off of that, it's going to see some disruption there also. I think uh, it's wireless EV charging. I think it's um, it's been tried a lot in the last few years, but I think it was October 2020 that uh, SAE released a unified standard for wireless EV charging, uh, 2954, I think. Uh, I have to go back and check. But that actually will allow interoperability and um, all the vehicle manufacturers also and the charging pad manufacturers to be able to create interoperable products. And I think that's going to allow them to scale. I think it is under 11 kilowatts. So it's not very large, but it's still bigger than what the current uh, state of the art is. And I think that's something that we're going to need 
to really scale EV charging to the next level because the demand is so high. Are you predicting that wireless EV charging is going to happen in the next 12 months? I'm not saying it's going to be fully commercial, but I'm going to say it's going to surface in a much, much stronger way. And it's going to be visible and noticeable. Right now, it's not. Okay, I'm going to take hot take. Transformers are going to matter in 2021. That's Does why it? you, you <laughs> want to have an engineer in the seat talking and not, not a non-engineer. I'm going to ambush Abe now because he's been quiet. Sure. All right, so Abe, Global Partnerships, Google, yes. yeah. big chair, big shoes. Um, uh, you, you're, you're, if you neglect to answer this question, that is de- a de facto prediction that Google is going to do. <laughs> sure. so I warn you that sure. what you do next is going to matter. Okay, Google Maps. Okay. Yep. Google big data, if that's even a thing, um, should, could, it would seem that, will Google roll out um, EV charging functionality and integration with maps in the next 12 months? Haven't they already done that? Yeah, to some can, extent there can is. I, really? How come I can't, tra- why can't I just transact my charging and map it in the app right now? To some extent. Uh, I think what you're laying out makes sense and would be reasonable for an APM to consider. If I could zoom out to the broader discussion around some predictions, I think Rivian will buy a charging network to complement its uh, lifestyle approach because they need a foothold there. I can also see Amazon as part of its prime offering, offering a kind of a bundled charging uh, add-on, if you will, for another five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, zero dollars a month, whatever have you. So I think the EV space, or the charging space rather, has been not neglected, but I think it's going to come to focus this year because of its strategic importance to a lot of the key players, whether it's the logistics players, whether it's just the, on the personal and vehicle side, whether it's the ride-hailing, the Chick-fil-A's of the world, if you will. Um, so I'm not trying to neglect your question, Alex, but I'm trying to get, provide as much information as possible without breaching any uh, contractual terms. Well so I also want to like just widen this to to what I, I'm really curious what people think are going to happen is going to happen in the in the EV market, particularly in the United States. Like we know in Europe now, um, clearly the the um, policy there has has really really accelerated sales um, just in in uh, you know over the last year. Um, but but U.S. and China have been um, maybe to some surprisingly uh, uh, shaky, weak, inconsistent in terms of, uh, of EV demand, um, certainly compared to some of the predictions like, um, for example, the Tony Siba prediction that like 2021 was gonna be this massive inflection point. Like it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't seem to be coming together that way, but I'm, I'm really curious, like who, who has a good sense of, of what the next year or so is gonna look like in terms of EV sales? Um, not totally in this either. market or, or or more broadly i think the european example shows how much policy matters to drive ev sales um so they as a part of the covid sort of economic uh support in addition to their green deal uh they were very supportive of ev sales i'm sure uh, michelle can talk in more detail about that um, you saw a dip because uh, in China, some of their support uh, had uh, lapsed. And so I think it just shows like we're not at that tipping point yet. For the U.S., we're going to have to see policy. I think the Biden administration is really interested in that, specifically in tying it to jobs policy. 
Um, so I feel like something will happen. Um, working in an organization trying to help make things happen. Uh, and so I feel very confident about that prediction, but maybe that's just rose colored glasses. Uh, but I, I think that that's gonna, policy is really gonna be the space to watch. Um, it, it seems to be less about the tech. And although I know Alex loves his Tesla, like it's, it's less about the experience when you wanna get to scale. So, so just really quick to clarify your prediction here, Absent, say there is no policy change over the next year, do you predict the EV market to grow a little bit, be flat, be down? California already has regs out uh, to drive for EV, like, I think it was 2030, everything has to be electrified. So I think no matter, and Massachusetts, I think has something, has the same thing. So I think there will still be pushes on a state-by-state basis that would drive uh, essentially necessitate some uptick now and they'll have to figure out support to be able to do that. So that we'd, if absent federal movement, state by state, there could be things that start to move the needle, but they'll be much smaller. Even Europe will say that you need subsidies for the initial purchase. So it's, it's not just the fines and the carbon credits, but it's also the consumer incentive. I think what's really interesting in China is all the movement on battery swapping. And then we saw the announcement with Uber and Ample, which I have to admit, I didn't really understand what how that's going to work. But if we think about all the different ways to keep EVs on the road, what do you think about battery swapping as opposed to just focusing solely on fast charging? Is, I guess better is place Michael, was ahead of its time. Is Michael <laughs> Granoff on the line. Where is he? No, uh, no, it's 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 like four in the morning in, um, in Israel. I don't would, think he's would, actually on. Would Riley Brennan like to tell us the story of Better Place? Uh, I won't do. I don't have the scar tissue that Michael Granoff does, but I will say that um, swapping makes all the sense in the world except in the United States, we've made this decision to have big battery packs. And essentially we've moved the infrastructure cost to the purchase price. So in Europe and in China, you're more likely to see things like that. And actually it's probably gonna mean you can taper off the incentives sooner because the vehicles can actually be cheaper if you're shipping them with a smaller pack. In the United States, we've kind of made this, the zeitgeist is you can't sell an electric vehicle for with less than 200 mile range. That's kind of how people think about it. And there was this chart that, um, I don't remember which analyst did it, but I tweeted it out a few weeks ago and it was basically showing all of the electric vehicles for sale and the range with those vehicles. And in the United States, there's barely any, any more that have under a hundred mile range. And so what that leads me to believe is that we're probably going to have a greater um, need to have incentives in the United States because of that, just because there's a huge spread with that, the cost of those vehicles. Um, I would argue that from an engineer perspective, swapping makes a lot of sense um, for some vehicles, particularly commercial vehicles where you might have, you know, a much simpler chassis and way to get the, the battery in and out. But a lot of the new vehicles that are designed really with an integrated chassis and pack and motor, it makes less sense for kind of new generation EVs to have swapping. I'm sure Allison would have an interesting opinion on that. Um, But EVs, I think, are going to follow the same, like it's going to grow. The numbers are going to look really like spectacular for the next five or 10 years because they're starting at such a small number. So like every year, even if it like, 
doubles. It's going to just, the messaging and the media hype around it is going to be extreme um, until it gets to these kind of like large majority numbers in 2030, 2035 or something like that. Um, And there's going to be a lot more manufacturers. So um, I know some people like don't like to talk about EVs all the time, but if you're covering the auto industry, you're looking at it, it's just the dominant force for the next decade. And also, of course, the policy. Um, I'm curious about what Abe was, uh, Abe, I I was curious, I was interested in what you were talking about when you were talking about some of your uh, predictions, sort of pulling back on EVs and, and charging. And I'm wondering if you have any comments based on what Riley just said, kind of more about the vehicle market in general. I think um, fleets are going to really be a key enabler and leader of change for the next couple of years, including with EVs. I think the bright drop announcement from GM, I think as they partner up with FedEx, is a signal towards that. So and that then potentially or partially solve some of the EV charging infrastructure issue and challenge, especially if they're kind of helping lay the groundwork. Um, I also think to Riley's point of pushing the cost of in- infrastructure to the battery pack, I think the the charge. Um, the sense of insecurity around do I have enough charge is going to diminish over time. So it's really going to be about a mind shift and a change of mindset. And I do think with a new administration, that's going to become uh, more so and people become more comfortable with it. It's not going to have some odd stigma that some people may just artificially impose on it. So I, I do think um, we're going to see an uptick, if I, could, if I should make a prediction. Um, it, we're going to see an uptick. I think, uh, you know, 2021 is going to be uh, a, a kind of the year that lays the foundation for um, material growth. And EV adoption in 22 and 23. I think this is going to be like the, the catalyst year where you see that kind of the, uh, the hockey stick start to kind of pick up leading into the next two years. Well, I'll see that prediction. I'll raise you one on the back end of that. And that's where we'll see more circularity startups than we see LIDAR startups. Because I think circularity is going to be essential to getting those EV numbers, whether it's someone like Redwood Materials who's looking at the recycling of the batteries or companies like B-Comp and looking at more natural fibers or even Bosch's announcements about cutting out upstream and downstream emissions throughout the entire uh, manufacturing, production, recycling. I think circularity is going to come into its own in a pretty big way, riding the skirt tails of EV. And is that, do you think, Michelle, going to be driven again by sort of policy and incentives, um, the sort of carrot and stick approach, or is it just going to be um, riding the tail, you know, the the tailwind of, um, of uh, just the rise in automakers rolling out EVs? I mean, what's going to prompt an EV automaker to go with those types of you mentioned like natural fiber materials that have been recycled and you see that like in the Tycon, for example, and some others, what's going to prompt those automakers to actually go and make that investment? Well, I mean, for some of the basic is obviously you've got to reduce the weight of some of these vehicles. And so you need to look for different ways, but I think it's also core materials for batteries in in and of themselves. We're not going to mine our way into a solution for all of these batteries. We're going to have to figure out a way to bring circularity into the whole thing if we're going to make this work, especially if it's true that these vehicles are going to be fleet and are going to be utilized at higher rate. How many manufacturers are really good at making a car that will last 300,000 miles or more? How many electric vehicle manufacturers can do that? 
So this is there's going to be replenishment of these vehicles potentially at a higher rate, and they're going to need to deal with the recycling of these materials in a more systematic way. And I think it'll impact the business models associated with them. Not to mention the fines that you're that you're going to get in Europe. <laughs> I just just real quickly, I think. Um... One norm that I could see emerging in the next couple of years is your Amazon box when it arrives at your house or your wherever you buy stuff from will have a label or a sticker on it that says how much emissions were emitted in transport transporting this box to your house. And, and then we're going to shame retailers or e-retailers into finding more um, uh, eco-friendly means of getting that whatever that shampoo to, to your house. Um, I think that's going to be something we see inside, just like how there was Intel inside. Interesting. Um, so we have a ton of questions on here um, that people have submitted. So I'm going to just kick it off just because they've been waiting for a while. And then Ed or Alex, you can finish up. Um, uh, we have a question from Aurora Labs, actually. How will WP29 affect North American automakers? And I'm guessing Michelle can answer that, but maybe someone else can too. Is, um, is that a, a Nuja question? Yeah, it probably is an Anuja question as well. Um, I, either one of you want to take that? Go ahead, Michelle. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh. Everybody loves the topic. I'd rather talk about GDPR. <laughs> Okay. What that's going to do if the U.S. gets GDPR, we really start caring about privacy. You know, I'd rather talk about you know, is there going to be a mobility as a service provider that offers non-trackable services because privacy tools get real? Um, then I'd rather talk about um, WP twenty nine. <laughs> okay. Know, how do you feel? Uh, but Anuja, <laughs> you have to you have to say something. This is your field. So I think um, I think WP29 is is uh, is a going to be a game changer. Okay, so it, there is definitely um, the, the the entire industry has worked very hard in putting something out together uh, by consensus that is going to create uh, a, a very very large ripple effect on on the way people's data is going to be accessed, the way it's going to be addressed, the way these systems are going to be designed and they're going to be built and they're going to be de-risked uh, as well. So I think um, there is not enough clarity currently. I think we are, and the reason why I hesitate to speak right now because we are really at the point where uh, very soon, I think in less than two months, we'll have an announcement really that will give some more clarity about uh, how uh, the governments are positioning themselves to uh, uh, to handle, you know, the floodgates that are going to open. From here. So I'm sorry, I'm not really. I'm going around. Um, it's okay. We'll have you back. Something. We'll have you back, and you can yeah, talk yeah, about it then. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm, just, I'm just limited by what I can speak right now. <laughs> Everyone's limited by what they can say these days. <laughs> um, well, Riley answered this question a little bit, but I'm curious if anyone else wants to weigh in, which was what's the, what's your prediction around all the LIDAR companies that uh, SPACed are about to? 
Man, I my general take on SPACs in auto tech is that um, they'll keep keep on coming. I mean, they've been you know they have the two year ticking clock, and there's a, been a bunch of more stood up. But um, I mean, lidar. I, I suppose there there could be a few more of those. It seems like Riley thinks there will be more of them. I kind of feel like they might peter out. But but I actually do believe that we'll see more in sort of picks and shovels as opposed to, Oh, you know, Fisker or, uh, you know, Nicola or whatever, we're just betting on one horse to kind of win. Um, and I also think that there's, um, there's a few other areas that, um, some of the newer SPACs are starting to, to kind of pick through, so to speak, meaning, you know, they like the early, the early SPACs very much focused on what's called application layer, but, feels like um, that whole sphere is starting to get a little more sophisticated and peeling the onion back on the stack. Um, and some of the areas I've heard in the future um, of interest are things like middleware and, you know, uh, IOT data plays, um, uh, semicon, like purpose-built semicon um, companies for AV. Um, really, especially, especially companies that can kind of be a proxy as an index for that entire, you know, field. So if someone's just bullish on the on the field in general, they can sort of use that one spec, that one company as sort of a you know exposure to it, um, and and it doesn't mean that just one vehicle maker has to win. If you know what I mean? I have feel like I have to chime in here about specs and lidar because uh, the, when recently Luminar spacked, and one of the and we had Austin on our show, and one of the things he brought up is that Mobile I was a customer, and just a few days after that. Uh, Mobileye announces that they're developing their own lidar. Now, uh, for it's for a different purpose and for deployment further out, but there are a lot of lidar companies out there, and there and it remains to be seen how many customers there are, like big customers. Um, so I think that you want to spec soon, or you're going to miss that window. I'd also add here's my, my prediction that Tesla is going to buy a sensor company. It's not going to be a LiDAR company. It's going to be something else, some hybrid sensor. I'm sure Riley's got some, some thoughts on this because if you want to deploy an autonomous vehicle, you can deploy one tomorrow if you don't care about safety. You can just deploy it. Um, but at the end of the day, the, you need to have redundant sensor types. Um, and chances are two sensors ain't going to cut it unless one of them is something that's we haven't seen yet, or that is very, very advanced. So I think Tesla, since they can't back out of this no LIDAR rule, they're going to buy somebody doing something very interesting in sensor tech, and they're going to add it to maybe one or two generations out of vehicles um, in order to enable higher levels of safety than the current sensors we can allow. I'm going to take the contra bet to you, Alex Roy. Not happening. Yeah, I, I want to register my bet. I'm, I'm with Ro. My comment on LIDARs, you know, the question was, will there, will there be more of them? And my answer is there, there will be more of them. Some of them will actually even be good companies. Um, you know, so there's a lot of lighter companies that name pilots and POCs as customers and they're not customers, right? I mean, we're talking about real production contracts. And so, Let's let's see what you got. You know, you can go public or you can do a SPAC and be a public company. Let's see how long 
Um, you know, the gravy train lasts if you're out for four quarters reporting in front of those analysts and their, those shareholders, if you don't have real production contracts. So I'm really curious about that. I also think it's interesting to think about, you know, back in 2015 and 16, how many early stage investors, myself included, were so excited about LIDAR. Um, it's almost like the the public markets are sort of you know, almost like if you were to transport them five or six years ago, the same level of excitement in the public market today um, was felt by those early stage investors back then. So um, there will be more of them, I guarantee you. Um, not related necessarily to SPACs, but one thing we saw this year at CES over at TechCrunch was that, yes, there are still a lot of LiDAR companies, but they've also moved into a lot of other companies into other sensing capabilities, which kind of gets to what Alex, I think was talking about. So there were companies like um, INET, which is a vehicle to X tracking platform. And there was a company called Nodar and Brightway Vision. They're basically all developing other different kinds of sort of sensing capabilities. And I don't remember seeing so many of these types of companies last year. And maybe it's just because there was so much noise around LIDAR last year. If you remember, it was a very desperate time. It seemed like for LIDAR companies at CES, uh, there was major booths, pretty big demos and a lot of money being poured into that. So I don't know, um, Riley, or anyone else who tracks this sort of other sensing areas, but we definitely saw more activity. Um, Isn't Nodar just... What are they doing beyond stereo camera? Is there some magic secret sauce? I have, uh, they, uh, I don't know. Um, I haven't um, written about them, but um, I will drop you a link because another reporter did. Yeah, I mean, the sensor stuff is, you know, putting one of these vehicles on the road is like putting a basketball team on the floor. You know, you kind of, you need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you, really can't rely on one, like the dogma of one sensor type to do everything. You might be able to do that if you're doing a very specific task like mining or construction and you and you know the ODD so well that you can limit it to one sensor, maybe two. But if you're doing, um, you know, vehicles for the road at full FMVSS, you need to have a handful of sensors. And today the answer to that is you have this like heterogeneous approach. Maybe in a few years, there's a totally new, invention that comes out that, you know, clears all these out and does something totally different. But I think just the, if you talk to reasonable engineers, they're like, yeah, I'd love to use whatever, you know, the sort of product development team will allow me to buy for this vehicle. Um, I don't know. That's, that's my, my take on this is you're just going to have to use a few of them. And so this wave of, you know, SPACs is around LIDAR because it just sounds so interesting. I think there's probably going to be a radar related SPAC this year, um, and probably some vision stuff, but there will be a radar spec in 2021. I have an important predictions question, a poll that I think needs to happen next year. Will there be an in-person CES? And if there is, will Ed ride Elon Musk's loop? Who says yes? Say yes. I, I predict I, it, I, I will ride it um, and while making fun of Ed on Twitter in real time. Will it exist, Ed? Will it be operational? Yes, 
Uh, will it will it meet any of its will it meet any of its goals? No. So, I mean, yeah, look, uh, well, the, yeah, it, it, thing. We oh, we sorry. haven't we haven't we, before we we wrap up. We're we're kind of getting close to about time to wrap up here, but we do have to sort of ask everyone the the big question that uh, the big prediction that we that we uh, asked about at the end of our show last year too, which is. Will there be Teslas that can drive themselves in 2021 at any point in 2021? Uh, and after that, we have a question. I ha we have to ask Roe a question, and then we have to answer the question that just popped in the Q&A. So who wants to take this first? Will there be any? What's the definition? Level four Teslas on the road. I see Allison nodding her head. Abe looks very stoic, stone-faced. The mean head it, uh, nod was just that we needed to define what we meant by self-driving. Okay, let's so define level it. level four. Got it. I, I think it's not just level four because that could just be a parking lot. That doesn't, that doesn't impress. So uh, it needs to be um, useful. Um, well, I mean, how do we define useful? What is the standard? Uh, uh, what did Elon Musk say? You can drive, you can buy one, it can take you anywhere you practically might want to go home to work is what's the do we even have a definition i mean i think the ultimate test is if they're willing to let the system take on the liability right does anyone can, can, can we even make a prediction around something we can't define see that happening yeah so, so will tesla assume liability for the full self-driving capability that they're currently selling to people for ten thousand dollars will in 2021 anywhere no. all right no 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 if riley in 2021 no but what they probably should do is create a new financial instrument that they get tesla fanboys to back and so you could do it as like a, a more mortgage-backed security almost and those tesla fanboys back this risk entity that carries all the risk for autopilot with um with also all of the downside. And that would be really interesting. I bet, I bet it would go crazy. FSD, not autopilot, FSD, right? For FSD, yep. Okay, yes. That, you know something, I think that that could happen. And I've seen some people on Twitter um, pitching startup ideas around things that could be bent towards that idea that I will never back myself. Um, I was about also, to ask you if you would invest in that. And no universe. And I paid for the $10,000. Well, I, it's baked into my lease. Um, now, recently, there was a guy, uh, a Tesla owner, whose lease is coming to an end. And he, he paid for the full self-driving. No, I think he financed the car. He paid for full self-driving. And now he's trading it in. And he wants to get another Tesla. And he tweeted at Elon Musk asking whether his $10,000 could be transferred to his new Tesla. Um, so here's another question for the group. In 2021, will Tesla um, allow owners to transfer the FSD they paid for, which does not yet function, to their new Tesla? No, unless legally no, compelled to do not. so. <laughs> no. No. I think you're tapping into something pretty big here. This pay-as-you-go services or features as a service I think there's going to be a lot more involved in that. And I think it's going to be tied into the right to repair issues that we're seeing cropping up in a lot of the agricultural vehicles as well. John and I think Deere. we're going to, 
yeah, caterpillars moving into that area as well. We saw some movement in there. So I think the right to repair is going to rear up again, probably legally. Maybe we'll see some amicus briefs filed from John Deere, Apple, maybe Qualcomm will even jump in on it. But I think that's going to be one area to really keep an eye on is right to repair and the pay-as-you-go or features-as-services market. The price of entry, you know, I mean, I get that it makes sense for software for your computer, but for your vehicles, particularly at those costs and what it means for your business, especially if it's your tractor and you're waiting five days for it to get fixed, your software to get fixed by John Deere, and you've lost five days of harvest, that's non-trivial. So there are going to be a lot more of those kinds of issues that will probably break through on on settling some of the the case law around these features. And do you believe that Tesla's recent, uh, Musk has said that they're going to offer a subscription option for full self-driving. Do you believe that that is a preemptive move in advance of uh, potential class action suits around the failure to deliver FSD? I don't know. Does anybody anybody have any predictions that that the Biden administration? So I mean, uh, David Zipper wrote a story arguing the the Biden administration should uh, take steps to uh, uh, basically, I think you know, essentially declare autopilot to be defective due to the predictable abuse problems with it. Does anybody think that's that's actually going to happen? I don't know that the Biden administration is going to, um, but I think if you actually get into like NHTSA, which has jurisdiction over safety, um, we will have to see uh, as they actually get up and running. I think high level, because there's also a question about AV legislation, so I'll tie it together. I think high level, um, the the administration itself is going to be focused on the economy um, and EVs and jobs as a part of that. I think AV is a a lower point on the totem pole until something happens really big in China that makes us realize we're very far behind and then it will jump up. Um, But with that, I don't think we'll see federal AV legislation. And I think from a NHTSA perspective, there could be opportunity there just depending on who, like the individual personalities, not Biden deciding that that's something that should be focused on. Uh, But as our time clock winds down, we we had a remark by Rogupta earlier. We said he had something to say, a prediction to make about the mapping sector and some M and A. Do I remember that correctly? No, not not necessarily M and A. You asked me. Uh, you told me your childhood story about going to the map store, and I didn't want to get into your baggage or whatever. But um, a lot, a lot of baggage. <laughs> no. Um, do I have a prediction for maps? Yes, I do. But actually, I think it's a it's a bigger it's a broader one too, related to critical data. Um, you know that is, is literally you know safety like uh, deployment critical uh, data for this industry. I think first off, um, in our case for maps, it's a safety it's you know the, it's a safety critical um, in technology. But I think in 2021, we were already seeing this last year. 2021. A lot of the focus on the cape, on the sort of what the map allows you to do will shift to experience as well. Um, so um, there will be more demands for uh, ubiquity, definitely. So just highway, limited access highways alone, not going to cut it, not cutting it uh, still. And then also on, um, on change management and freshness of data, 
all those things are going to be forces where they've been sort of being kicked around in slideware for years now. And I think you will see some real sort of people playing offense there this year. I also think the other kind of um, prediction on generally like what the auto industry wants or doesn't want is um, with, uh, so actually take Mobileye for, you know, they, they just made their announcements last week. Uh, you know, they certainly have a formidable penetration in the space and they have sort of a hardware device that they're also trying to parlay into um, a data a probe network. Um, they, I think they will keep pushing on uh, aggressively on that, but I think what you will see is stronger moves from the auto industry, all parts of the ecosystem to maintain more control um, from sort of a black box, sort of sort of a wall garden and sort of um, cultivate other solutions that are, you know, a little bit more open system so that they can choose their specific hardware chipsets or whatever. Um, that's kind of like, and this is a thesis we've had for a long time where we, we do think kind of this Android concept, um, you know, kind of complementing a more of an iOS type of approach, you know, in the case of a mobile eye, um, is something we know the industry's wanted for a while, but I think we will see stronger moves in that in 2021. But actually, also curious, I think, Abe, Abe, you said you also had some some thoughts on the matter since you guys deal with maps all day long. Yeah, uh, before I touch on that, I, I do think, to, to Rose's point, um, I, I think a lot of OEMs or car makers have woken up to some unfavorable terms when it comes to some of their key suppliers. And I think that's driving some of their considerations that Rose uh, kind of touching on. In terms of mapping, what I kind of, the thought I have, and I think some might scoff at this is, um, you know, the HD map needed for autonomy, whatever level of autonomy, um, there's going to be a wake up call that we shouldn't maintain 18 different databases, that there are some common baselines and base layers, if you will, that perhaps should be pulled together and shared across the industry. And it's a kind of a gift to get kind of model, um, almost like a, a model zoo, if you will, but just for mapping and basic it could be the base layer. It could be like the kind of more fundamental layers of a map, but it seems like a waste of economic resources for everyone to build their own proprietary maps, especially when it comes to the lower level uh, layer of data. That's my my thinking. I would really like to follow up another time with an episode about the history of mapping, but going back to like the 17th and 18th centuries, because I have a feeling like this the same conversation was had, um, and it was a it was a tough time. Uh, all right. We're, we should wrap up our episode unless anyone wants to raise their hand. Now's the time. Um, to make... Riley said something yes. about curve yes. management. I think that's also very important to consider um, when, when looking at the impact it has on mapping, right? So um, this digital curve that can be changed and you can um, make different vehicles either park there or not park there and the fundamentals of uh, how that curve is being used or changing that has an impact on mapping and so considering a dynamic element to mapping um, that has to be brought in even during covid what we saw was uh, parking lots were used for other purposes like uh, vaccination drives and uh, testing drives and you know doubled up as flex spaces so parking lots are going to become these virtual flex spaces. And in the last few years, I've heard things about how um, parking lots will disappear and, you know, they're going to be used for 
restaurants and other things where I think they will stay because they are that flex space. But that impacts mapping because it, it impacts AVs because now AVs need to understand, oh, today I can't use the space like this. Tomorrow I can use the space like this. Right now the space is going to be used differently. And so any AV technology that is intersecting these spaces also will be impacted. Mapping will be impacted. Actually, so I, I can confirm that, Anuja. So last year, after, with uh, the, the pandemic, with you know restaurant outdoor dining taking up parking lanes, we were actually on the fly forced to incorporate that into our data model and into our uh, computer vision detectors. And so we now have classifiers and detectors for parking lane dining events. That's likewise. Of- I mean, we had the we had the exact same issue. That's why I speak from experience. <laughs> yeah. And with that, we are going to wrap up our predictions episode. I'd like to thank everyone who came here today. And starting with Anuja Salakar, the CEO and founder of Steer Technologies, Riley Brennan, um, uh, Trucks.VC, Future Transportation Newsletter, and someone, if you don't follow him, and is, you, you have to or you're not, it's hard to get and, a job. And, the, and the, the man behind the podcast. And the man, uh, and Darwin. Um, how do you pronounce your last name, Darwin? Well, he's not going to come on and pronounce his last name. <laughs> he's behind the scenes. Well, he's behind well, thank, the thank, thank you, Darwin. Darwin. Yeah, yeah um, Allison, Allison Malik. Uh, um, uh, Allison Malik is amazing. Abe Jacobian, thank you, Michelle Avery from World Economic Forum. Rogupta, our sponsor, the uh, co-founder of the founder of Carmera, and Niedermeyer of the Partners for Autonomous Vehicle Education. Kirsten Korsak, the now El Jefe of Transportation Coverage at TechCrunch, and um, I'm Alex Roy of the No Parking Podcast. Um, thanks for coming. Special thanks to uh, to Carmera for uh, once again being uh, part of our annual tradition. Uh, it was not the same this year as uh, it has been in the past. Um, we'll see if it is next year as well. Uh, sooner or later, we will get back to the annual party in Vegas. I can't wait. Can't wait to see you all there and uh, continue these uh, these fascinating conversations. And thanks to all the folks who registered and joined us. Uh, please. DM us, send us your thoughts, and um, thanks for joining us on another episode of the Atomicast. <laughs>